Well, humility is a curious virtue, isn't it? I guess we all want to say that uh, to be humble is good and to be proud is bad. And we much prefer, I think, the victorious sports person to be humble in accepting their prize rather than loud and proud and arrogant. And yet, is it bad to take pride in your achievements? And is humility the same as low self-esteem? Because low self-esteem is bad, isn't it? And although we might recognise humility as a virtue, we also recognise that when someone is humiliated, something bad is happening. Or is it? So humility is our topic over this uh, holiday break. It's a really important idea in the Bible. Just as an example of how important humility is in the Bible, listen to this sentence. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's actually a sentence that appears three times in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, in the Old Testament, and in the letter of James, and in the letter of 1 Peter. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humility obviously matters, doesn't it? None of us like having enemies, but there could never be a more terrifying, more potent, scarier enemy than the Lord God. And the Lord God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility matters. And so we're going to spend three Sundays together thinking about humility. It's no way near long enough, of course. Because of its importance, there's so much about humility and pride in the Bible that three weeks together is way too short. We can really only skim the surface. Um, There's so much in the Bible about the rightness of our humility before God. There's so much in the Bible about the need for us to be humble before each other. But before we get to those important topics, they're the next two Sundays, our starting point today is the Lord Jesus himself, the one who described himself as humble in heart. Because there's no way that we can understand or appreciate or approach humility without considering the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's our joyful task today. Um, I'm hoping that by the end of our time together, we might uh, perhaps have a a deeper, fuller, more uh, appreciation of the surpassing greatness of the humility of Jesus. So it'd be terrific if you had your Bible open at John chapter 13. And there is that outline uh, in the uh, bulletin. And let me pray for us again. Because we're proud people, aren't we? And we need God's spirit to be at work in us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of that last hymn that were so moving. Because, Father, we, uh, we come to you as instinctively proud people. And so to hear, Father, that you oppose the proud troubles us deeply. And Father, we want this morning, please, 
for you to help us to understand something of the greatness of the humility of Jesus. And Father, as we look at your word together, we pray that you might help us to grasp it, but that in in grasping what you teach us this morning, Father, we want to be changed by it. And so we're very grateful for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we begin uh, with the evening meal that Jesus shared with his disciples just before the important Passover feast in Jerusalem. Never more important than this one. There are lots of important Passover feasts, but never more important than this one, for it would be time for Jesus to die. So let's look together at John's description of this meal uh, in chapter 13 of his gospel. Let me read from verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Well, I reckon if you look at those sentences there that John begins his description of this meal with, you can see they're pretty loaded, aren't they? Do you think? They're massively loaded sentences. In fact, each of those four sentences that I've just read are loaded with big themes and ideas. You know, really, we could spend a whole morning looking at each of those sentences, probably even bits of the sentences. In fact, if you'd read the earlier 12 chapters of John's Gospel, you'd notice how those four sentences actually pick up on big themes that are already present in the book. But not only do those sentences look back on what's already happened in John's gospel, they also anticipate the chapters to come, the events to follow. They signal with great clarity the importance of this meal. And we're going to spend, we could spend lots of time on those four sentences and we'll, and we'll return to them. But our particular focus today is in fact on verses three, four, and five. And really on just one word in those verses. In verses 3, 4, and 5, just one word, uh, at least in the NIV translation. It's one word, you know, that uh, when I read it not so long ago, took my breath away. It's not a big word, but it's a mighty word here. And it's in verse 4 of John chapter 13, and it's the word, so. It links the words and ideas on either side of it. And the link, I think, is astonishing. The link reveals the logic of Jesus, and it's an astonishing logic. It's, in fact, the logic of humility. And until we can grasp the so, we'll not fully appreciate the glory of Jesus, you see. And we won't be able to grasp the virtue of humility. So let's look firstly at verse 3 together. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Notice with me what Jesus knew at the time of this evening meal. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. 
This is the Jesus who earlier in John's gospel, you see, called people to follow him with great authority and power, and they did. This is the Jesus who turned water into wine as a sign of his glory. This is the Jesus who marched into the temple with righteous anger and drove the money changers out with a whip because zeal for his father's house consumed him. This is the Jesus that confounded and perplexed the religious leaders of his day with his knowledge and his wisdom and his authority. This is the Jesus who knew things about people, could astonishingly know and measure their heart. This is the Jesus who healed a young boy close to death simply by speaking in one place and the boy being instantly healed in another. This is the Jesus who effortlessly healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He simply spoke. This is the Jesus who taught uh, that he had all, in ju- all judgment had been entrusted to him by his father. In other words, this is the Jesus who holds in his hands the keys of death and life. This is the Jesus who with just five small loaves of barley and two small fish fed 5,000 men plus all the women and children. This is the Jesus who walked across the water to join his disciples in the boat. This is the Jesus who healed a man who had been born blind with merely spit and dirt. This is the Jesus who went to his friend Lazarus's tomb after Lazarus had been dead for four days and awesomely called the dead man out from the grave with just his voice, Lazarus, come out. And he did. And I'm only reminding you this morning of the things that John records in his gospel. And John, in fact, tells us that Jesus, in fact, did many, many more things than he had recorded in his, in his book. In fact, John reckoned that if anyone tried to write down all the things that Jesus did, John reckons the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would have to be written. God the Father, you see, had put all things In the power of his son. God the father had given all things into Jesus hands. Jesus if you like was supercharged with power and authority. There has never ever been a more powerful ruler walk this planet. And Jesus knew that. Jesus was fully aware of his power and his authority. Imagine that. Not that we can. But try and imagine something of it. Try and imagine knowing that God had put all things into your hands. Try and imagine knowing that you could literally do anything. Jesus knew that. And he knew too that he had come from God and was returning to God. So many times, you know, through John's gospel, Jesus speaks of having come from God and returning to God. Awesome authority and power, you see, because of his identity. This, John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel, this 
is the word of God. This Jesus is the word of God who in the very beginning was with God and was God. This is the one you see. This Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. This is the one in whom there is light and life. This is the word who became flesh. Who made his dwelling among people. He came from God for a time and was, returned, was to return to God in all his glory. The king of kings who would rightly take his place at the right hand of his father in heaven. The Lord of the entire universe. The one to whom every knee would bow. Kings, wealthy people, rulers, Corporate executives, tyrants, lords, masters, workers, servants, slaves, everyone, everyone, everywhere will have to bow the knee to Jesus. And Jesus knew that. He knew all of that. And that's the Jesus, you see, who was sharing an evening meal with his friends, his disciples, just before the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And if you could have peeked into the room, you would have seen a bunch of ordinary-looking blokes. But one of them, in fact, was extraordinary. The most extraordinary man ever, anywhere. For he was the Son of God. He had come from God and was soon to return to God. And God the Father had put all things under his power, and he knew that. Jesus knew that. And so, John says, he acted in perfect accord with what he knew. Because of all that Jesus knew about himself and his power and his authority and his position, he acted accordingly. See, look with with me at verse 4. And notice that most important first word. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Friends, can you just take a moment to ponder what happened at that moment, that evening, in that room? Because it is so astounding, isn't it? It's so unbelievable, really. It's incredible. Don't you think? Astounding? I said that Jesus was extraordinary, but this marks him out as extraordinary, uh, really, as any of his miracles. In fact, this whole talk that I'm attempting to give this morning really began when I noticed that word so a few months ago in my Bible reading because it just blew my mind. This is the awesome, glorious logic of Jesus. The logic of humility. The logic of love that was within the heart and mind of Jesus, the Son of God. It's an extraordinary event. In Jesus' day, you know, in Jesus' culture, the washing of another's feet was deemed to be a great 
disgrace. It was more than just yucky. It was a disgrace. It was a task reserved for the very lowliest of servants. Some Jews apparently insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of other Jews, that it should be a task given to the Gentiles because it was just far too demeaning. So I want you to picture the disciples and Jesus on their mats around a low table. They uh, usually leant, apparently, on their left arm and their feet would have been radiating out from the table. And picture Jesus in your minds, knowing all that we've been thinking about and more. And Jesus pushes himself up from the ground and he slowly takes off his outer clothing and he wraps a towel around his waist. He assumes, in other words, the dress of a lowly servant, a style of dressing that, in fact, was looked down upon. It was contemptible, disgraceful. And then Jesus works his way around the disciples, washing their dirty feet and drying them with the towel wrapped around him. I'm going to take a guess, okay, and I reckon that you and I would struggle to wash each other's feet. It would feel demeaning. Wash your own feet. Why should I wash your feet? You're you're no better than me. But you see, Jesus, knowing that God had placed all things into his hands, washed the disciples' feet. Even perhaps more profoundly, Imagine Jesus washing the feet of Judas, the one who would betray him. Imagine Jesus looking into the eyes of Judas as Jesus lovingly, humbly washed the feet of the one who within hours would betray him to death. Incredible. In Luke's Gospel at a time when the disciples were bickering about which of them was considered to be the greatest, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 22. He said this, I am among you as one who serves. That's such a profound truth, isn't it? I am among you as one who serves. And it's seen so clearly in this act of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. It's the glorious logic of Jesus. It's the logic of humility. It's the logic of love. That in his power and authority and greatness, absolute in every every sense of the word, he chose to serve. He chose humility. An extraordinary event. And yet, of course, if we were to just to stop this morning at the washing of the disciples' feet, we wouldn't yet have even begun to plumb the full glory of the humility of Jesus. We wouldn't have even scratched the surface, really. In fact, in washing their feet, Jesus, it was a stunning moment of humility, but it merely anticipated Jesus' greatest act of of humiliation. His greatest act of loving service. And we can hear that anticipation in Jesus' conversation with Peter. Have a look at verse 6 with me. 
Verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? See, Peter objects to his master humiliating himself in such a degrading way. But look at Jesus' reply, verse 7. You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Later you will understand. How much later? Well, within 24 hours, most likely. For if in washing the feet of the disciples, Jesus began to show them the full extent of his love, that, that very same love was most fully and comprehensively revealed as Jesus, betrayed by Judas into the hands of the authorities, didn't this time willingly remove his outer clothing. He had his clothing ripped from his body was flogged. The one into whose hands God had given all things was dressed in a purple robe to mock his so-called authority. He was spat upon. He was struck. He was taunted. Until finally he was crucified among criminals. The hands into which God had put all things were cruelly nailed to a cross. The lowest of the low despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, humiliated, you see, utterly humiliated. And yet Jesus was no victim. Jesus was a willing servant with precisely the same willingness with which he washed the disciples' feet, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be humiliated in his death for sinful people. Because, you see, he took up not our dirty, stained feet, but he took up the corruption and the stain of our sin. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was our humble servant. He was the servant of the Lord. For remember, he came among us to serve. He was the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to make us clean of sin by bearing the stain of that sin himself on the cross, by willingly absorbing the wrath of God at our sin in his broken body so that we might not have to face that wrath, so that we might be justified and forgiven. Friends, the humility of Jesus that is seen so graphically and so memorably, really, in the washing of, Je- of the disciples' feet, it was most completely unveiled, if you like, in his saving, serving death as a ransom for his people. As low as Jesus stooped, if you like, to wash the disciples' feet, he stooped infinitely lower to wash sins. 
The Apostle Paul described it like this in the verses that um, A.B. read for us earlier from Philippians chapter 2, describing Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, that is our king. We follow a king, you see, who knowing, knowing that he had all authority and all power, knowing that, he chose to humble himself as a servant, the lowest of all servants. We follow a king, you see, who came not to be served, but to serve. We follow a king who came among us as one who serves. We follow a king who humbled himself even to death, even death on a cross. And so you see, whatever else we might say about humility and humiliation, as Christians, we must recognize its honor in God's order of things. In a strange way, the humiliation of Jesus exalts humiliation in the life of his followers. The humility and willing humiliation is a core part, you see, of the, of the surpassing greatness of Jesus that we savor and we honor and we worship. Although it can be a bit of a problem for us too. Certainly a problem, wasn't it, for Peter back in that room? Peter was confounded that, his, that Jesus, his master, would need to be his servant. With Jesus stooped before him, Peter protested there in verse 8, No, you, you'll never wash my feet. To have a king, you see, who is, who is to be prepared to be so humiliated is, well, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? It, it goes against the natural order of things. We want to follow strong leaders. To follow a humiliated leader is to somehow share in that humiliation. And that's offensive to our pride. To need to be served by our king in such a degrading way makes us squirm a bit, really. Consider though Jesus' reply to Peter there in verse 8. Jesus answered Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. See, there's no other way to belong to Jesus than to have him serve us in dying for our sins. And like I said before with our dinner, that is the offense of the gospel, isn't it? That's the offense of the gospel. We'd like to earn our way in on the basis of our good life, our deeds, be able to point to something and say, well, that was my bit. But we can't. Nothing we can boast in. We are stained with sin and all we can do is to cry out for mercy. Our only hope is having a king who would serve us as gloriously as Jesus chose to. And friends, unless we are prepared to have Jesus wash us in such a degrading, humiliating way, we have no part in his, with him or his kingdom. And may it be that our answer might be the same as Peter's that evening in that upper room there in verse 9. 
Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Reminds me of the uh, hymn, Rock of Ages. Remember the line, the, the uh, stanza? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin, to you I cry. Remember the next line? Wash me, Saviour, or I die. The way the humility of Jesus impacts on our humiliation before him, we're going to think about some more next time. But our focus today, I really want us to walk away this morning with perhaps in some sense a deeper, more honouring grasp of the surpassing greatness of the humility of Jesus. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Can we say the last bit together if you know it? Hallelujah, what a saviour. Let's say it again. Hallelujah, what a saviour. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we're stunned with the humility of Jesus. It's extraordinary. We can't quite, Father, get our heads around how Jesus could make the leap from knowing that he had all authority, knowing his position in creation, can't quite make the leap that he would go from that to then serving and the fault is ours father we freely admit that but our problem father is it's such a difficulty for us that we don't quite grasp how wonderful it is and we need your help i would ask father that we would continue to ponder the glory of that little word so Father, help us to appreciate the glory of having a king like Jesus with such authority who came among us as one who would serve. Father, as proud people, we need to learn so much of humility. For we do not want to be among those who you oppose, Father. We need your grace. We thank you for Jesus. What a saviour. Amen.